Welcome to Tightlift Presents, a series of episodes about chronic pain and healthcare from shows that we love. At Tightlift, we're creating a public conversation about a private type of pain, and we want you to have a chance to hear from other podcasts that are talking about shame, chronic vulvovaginal pain, and the politics surrounding these conditions that we often keep secret. I'm Hannah. So far in our season, we've explored how sexism and the history of hysteria impact our experiences in the doctor's office. But there are so many other factors at play when it comes to seeking diagnosis and treatment. Race and class influence what kind of care we receive, and they play a role in the doctor-patient relationship. Sharla and Lauren are the hosts of the podcast The Secret Lives of Black Women, a show about everything from sex and self-care to rage and anxiety. Every episode explores the secrets that have helped black women flourish through the bullshit. In the episode we're sharing today, Sharla and Lauren talk to Dr. Deborah Hardy Cartwright. She shares her own story of navigating the medical world as a black OBGYN and her perspective on how to advocate for yourself as a patient. She talks about the many challenges patients face today, from medical issues like fibroids and infertility to trying to find a doctor who will believe your pain and take you seriously. And I don't think a lot of times the um, black women could trust a lot of the white male older doctors. They wouldn't listen or they mm-hmm. didn't give them as much care. attention care. or care or concern. Yeah. I mean, genuine concern for their well-being. Um, but I think one of the biggest issues is listening to the patient because they know when something's wrong and they need to be seen. It, you know, you really have to be your own advocate because a lot of times the options won't allow, you know, future fertility. There is a higher percentage of fibroids in black women. Black women um, also show signs and symptoms earlier than white women. This is The Secret Lives of Black Women. I'm Lauren. I'm Sharla. And today we're talking health, particularly Black women's health. I feel like when I was young, I just thought I was sort of just careless with my body. And only think of it in terms of reproduction. So I'm really excited to have this conversation, not only for myself, because I also feel like Black women's health and our maternal health you know, have been at the forefront of really scary conversations that is scary and fearful. And I want to, you know, learn more about that and learn, you know, ways that I can advocate for myself and advocate for other Black women. So I think this conversation is really important. Yeah, I mean, when I was in my 20s, I could drink a bottle of, you know, rum and then go to work at 8 a.m. and be Sprite and happy. And now if I have a glass of wine, (laughs) don't chug a bottle of water to chase it. Before I go to sleep, I wake up with a splitting headache. Like my body's literally breaking down every year as I get older. It's bananas how my body has changed. Um, And now I have fibroids, which is a thing that I never even heard of. And my friends have fibroids and I'm just like, what's going on with all of our bodies? And I have friends with endometriosis and I have friends who just we're all just facing such, you know, unexpected, constant health issues that I don't really hear men. At least they're not openly talking to it about me. My guy friends don't openly talk about whatever health issues, whereas I feel like my girlfriends, all of us in our 30s are just like it's like a constant diagnosis every day. Yeah, same because we're. We're going through these issues and it just feels good to talk to friends like about how do I navigate this? Like this is something that it feels like all of us are dealing with right now that we weren't dealing with before. So I am pleased as punch that we have Dr. Deborah Hardy Cartwright in the studio to talk to us about these issues. She is an OBGYN. She started her first practice right after residency in the 80s in Annapolis, Maryland. She was the first black woman OBGYN in Annapolis, Maryland um, in her hospital. And she is just phenomenal and is such a, a patient care advocate. And I'm just excited to learn and to talk about 
issues with the doctor about like fibroids and about infertility and just black and women's about, maternal yeah, health. Yeah, just being and, a black woman in the medical field. Yeah. How do I advocate for myself with doctors? So I can't wait to hear what she has to say. So let's jump into the interview. As a kid, everyone at least has that moment where you're like, I'm going to be a doctor. I want to be a doctor. Or your parents are like, you should be a doctor or a lawyer. I think particularly in Black families, it's like the upper echelon of success. So when did you know that you actually wanted to be a doctor and it wasn't just like a childhood pressure pressure or dream and then you moved on? I guess the first time I, I got the idea to be a doctor was when I was in school and my uncle actually was an OBGYN as well. And he gave me the, you know, the incentive to to want to go ahead and move forward with this possibility. Because at first I thought maybe I'd be a pharmacist or, you know, some other uh, medical field profession, but I hadn't really thought about being a physician until I had a nice role model to to, you know, move forward um, in his footsteps, sort of. But uh, it was no pressure from my family or, you know, they just wanted me to do well and succeed in whatever I did. But, you know, they never really um, pushed me to go in either any type of particular direction, just so as long as I was happy doing what I was doing. What do your parents do? My father worked in the Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Portsmouth. My mom did different jobs. She um, was the first black cashier at the Mermaid Tavern in Jamestown, Virginia. It was in the 50s, and there was a lot of, of course, racism. 50s. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Her boss was a foreign guy. I forget where he was from, but he was not like the typical Virginian as far as hiring blacks. And I remember her saying there was a lot of jealousy um, amongst the employees that were white because they didn't want her to be handling the money or working up front and doing that type of, you know, being in that type of position. Um, and so she was really a pioneer in that respect. And um, my parents both were very much pioneers in a, in a lot of respects because the county I grew up in was majority black. It was like 60%, 40%. And when I was coming up in school, of course, it was segregated and it was only black kids in my school. And then when they finally... Um, integrated, the white public school would not allow the black kids to um, come into the school system, even though it was, you know, federal law. So they created their own school. So it was Surrey County Private Academy. I remember going into the fourth grade and the building had KKK written across the oh my God. the um, doors when we went in. But, um, it, you know, we stayed pretty much, even though it was we were supposed to be integrated. We pretty much stayed segregated because the um, white kids all went to their own private school in the same county. But I said that because my parents were very um, active in civil rights. My father actually um, and my mother were very, very um, strong advocates in voter registration. What really stands out for me is your mom was a pioneer in her workplace, and yes. so were you. Yes. So you were the first black woman OBGYN yes. in Annapolis. Yes. What was that experience like, and how did you find your own internal strength to persevere? Because I imagine that it couldn't have been easy. Well, yeah, it, it wasn't easy. As a matter of fact, um, it was totally white male-dominated. And um, when I came in, I got a lot of pushback. And one incident, I remember I was in the call room because, you know, we stayed on labor and delivery a lot. We're waiting for the babies to to, to be delivered. And um, it was all white men in, in the um, doctor's lounge. And this was when I first got there. And one of the white male doctors said, um, why did you come to Annapolis? You know, we didn't need any more physicians. And to be 
to be totally honest, I came to Annapolis because the private practices in Annapolis would not accept any patients that were on medical assistance. And of course, the majority of patients on medical assistance in that particular town were black patients. So and what does medical assistance mean? Is that a financial status or? Yeah, what, it's, what med- it's, it's Medicaid. So oh, okay. they don't have private insurance. Okay. Um, it's it's uh, government insurance. Mm-hmm. And um, so none of the private practices in Annapolis would accept the government insurance. And so that's why the um, the state had funded a program to bring in four physicians into An- Annapolis to take care of these um, patients. And I was one of them. And one in- another incident, my husband and I, because he's a CPA and um, that was one of the reasons I decided to go into private practice too, because, you know, I could have uh, a lot of support and help with him, and I could trust him as a, as my um, accountant. And anyway, the um, the accountant at the hospital um, had a check that we were supposed to get five thousand dollars to you know contribute to the malpractice. And he goes, he makes a comment. Well, I can't just hand you the five thousand dollar check. What if you decide to go to Florida? And we were like, really? <laughs> you know, would he say that to a white male sitting here? You know, mm-hmm. so that was. Um, the type of thing I would run into all the time. And even with the nurses, you know, it was it was like I had to gain the respect from them. And I'm like, I, you know, no, I trained and I'm doing this and this is the way it is. And I would be questioned, you know, so it took a while to. How did you find that? the inner strength to deal with that? Or who did you lean on at that time? Like, would you call your mom and say, like, what what experiences did you have as, like, a cashier that I could help navigate all that's happening around me? Well, that's a good question. I um, I always had good role models in my parents because they really stood up against, you know, the status quo as far as um, white domination, especially in the county and all. So I had that inner strength, and I knew that— um, that I deserve to be there, you know, and I know my mom deserved to be there and my dad and, and, you know, how they fought for what was their right. So they certainly gave me the strength to do that. And then I have a s- supportive husband. I've had um, a lot of, of support in my uncle and, you know, and also the um professors and administration at Howard University, because I went to a predominantly black medical school and um, I got a lot of support from them. Actually, when I made a decision to go to Annapolis, one of my um, mentors, um, Dr. John Clark at Howard University, I'll never forget, he's OBGYN, and he told me, he said, if you make a decision to go to Annapolis, make sure that you don't work for them, you know, don't work for any of the private practices. And and um, so I definitely kept that in mind. And he was right because there's there was a lot of racism there. And um, but I persevered and I felt like the black population needed me. I also felt that it was a lot I could do to um, help women as a whole, you know, because a lot of times you know, they didn't have an option to go to a female doctor and Mm -hmm. they didn't even have an option to go to a black doctor, you know. So and I think there is a lot more to be said for being able to relate to who you go to and um, feel comfortable, feel like you can trust them. And I don't think a lot of times the um, black women could trust a lot of the white male older doctors. They wouldn't listen or they mm-hmm. didn't give them as much, I guess, um, care. attention care. or care or concern. Yeah. I mean, genuine concern, you know, for their well-being, um, not just coming up, you know, or treating them as, I don't know, like they're not 
human. Like, like yeah, yeah, and I like treating people like I want to be treated. You know, I like treating people like I'd like my mom to be treated, you know. So just to, I mean, there's several instances where patients would come into my office and they had had a hysterectomy, for instance, and they didn't even know why it was done. Or they didn't know whether they still had their ovaries, you know. Oof. And that's really important because, you know, I feel like as a woman, being a gynecologist, or an obstetrician and gynecologist, I can relate to women better. So I just saw a lot of a lot of issues when I came. Well, and I to- think especially as a black woman, like if I've had personal experiences, I know people that have had personal experiences of just like the pain index. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as yeah. a black woman doctor, you would believe when a woman says that she's in, in pain. pain. Yes. But there are all these studies that is yeah. when black women or women of color go into hospitals no one believes the That's level of right. pain that they That's say they're right. in. So just That's even right. that recognition yeah. of feeling seen is so important. We're going to take a quick break, but I want to shift gears when we get back to talk about sort of the Black maternal health crisis that's happening and some of the things that you're focused on, which really I'm super interested in and want to like get into details with like a doctor in the room. So we'll be right back um, and we're going to get into it. We are back with Dr. Hardy Cartwright. And I, I mean, one of the reasons that Charlotte and I really were like, we want to have a black OBGYN on this episode is that, you know, I found that in my 30s, a lot of friends are dealing with issues of like fibroids, which... I had no idea about, and I think in my 20s, I just didn't even think about my uh, reproductive care because it was just like, well, how do, the only thing I thought about was like, how do I avoid having a child? But it seems to be, and let me know if I'm wrong, if this has always been an issue that's been prevalent, but I think especially in the media and in personal experience, there seems to be a huge I don't I don't know if epidemic is the right word, but black mm-hmm. women dealing mm-hmm. with issues of fibroids. So can you first explain mm-hmm. what fibroids are and then let us know why why does this seem to be an issue that affects black women so much? Yeah. You definitely have a point. There is a higher percentage of fibroids in black women. And black women also show signs and symptoms earlier than white women. And the actual occurrence in the general population, I mean, there's been some quotes as, you know, 70% of white by white women by the age of 50 will have fibroids, whereas over 80% of blacks by the age of 50 Whoa. will have fibroids. So Seems it, like it, it's high, period. It is high. It is high. But the thing is, most women have fibroids, but they're asymptomatic, which means they don't have symptoms. But the black women do tend to have more symptoms and they occur earlier. And usually a fibroid itself actually is a muscle growth in the uterine wall. And it's swirls of muscle that just multiply and grow and get larger. And they're very responsive to hormones. The estrogen hormone, for instance, triggers the growth. That's why they get larger in pregnancy and after menopause, they shrink. But it is in black women very, very common. It is actually the most common for reason for hysterectomy. But now we have a lot of hysterectomy alternatives. And one of them is what we call a myomectomy, where we actually remove the fibroids. That particular treatment for fibroids is the only treatment that allows for fertility in the future. Um, there's a lot of other alternatives that are medical alternatives that don't really support fertility um, because they create side effects. You can't really try to get pregnant when you're on them, but we can do things to help control the bleeding, control the pain, you know, to get them to a point where they don't have a miserable life from, you know, bleeding so heavily and cramping so badly. But the symptoms actually also include pressure on the bladder. They can have pain with intercourse. It it creates a lot of um, other potential 
uh, side effects. And is this true? So I've heard that one of the things that causes fibroids to grow is stress. And black women are inherently more stressed, I mm-hmm. think, than other women, just the the social pressures that we have to deal with. Is that true? And do you think that that's maybe part of the reason why it's seen in such higher numbers in our community? No, I don't think there's any link to stress okay. for, for the growth of the fibroids. I think it's a lot of it's genetic. You know, patients just have a predisposition to them. But one of the things that could be an issue, too, with our black women is being able to be a part of the treatment decisions because, you know, you really have to be your own advocate because a lot of times the options won't allow, you know, future fertility. So I think as as a whole, our patients need to be educated on what options, you know, that are available and what they can choose and how they the options are approached. For instance, there is a surgical option to have a myomectomy that can be done with a large incision or with a small incision, what we call laparoscopic. And laparoscopic surgery is actually allows for a shorter recovery time to go back to work sooner. It's less pain. And um, that particular option is not offered to all our patients, you know, because a lot of studies show that less black women have either myomectomy or hysterectomy done abdominally when it could have been done laparoscopically. And Mm -hmm. they weren't ever offered this choice, you know. So I think that the population of black women needs to be aware that you should, you know, pursue that option. And you want to be in the hands of someone who's specialized in that particular treatment. Is is there any information as to why black women tend to not be offered that kind of information? Is it... um, is it an assumption of, is it a more expensive surgery? Is it like, why? That's a good question. Um, I, I, I would say probably because the doctor wants to keep them as a patient and they may not be qualified to do that advanced type of surgery. Um, because when I, you know, have patients, I do look at what's in their best interests, and a lot of times they may be seeing a physician that's not looking at what's in their best interests. At you know, it's not. I'm not trying to say that that's what most physicians do, but I think that the patients need to be offered that option. What advice would you give to uh, a black woman to advocate for herself in a medical setting? Because I think sometimes you you feel that your doctor is just the expert and you don't necessarily want to push back. So what advice would you give for a patient in truly advocating for themselves and exploring other options for their medical health? Yeah, and and just to tack on to that, is there are there any clues that can tip us off as patients that our doctor might not either be informed or you know, interested in our best interests? Um that is a good question. I guess um, it's just a matter of how you can relate to the doctor, whether they listen to you, because a lot of times it's a problem with actually listening and taking your complaints seriously. And I think that a lot of times patients can get the sense when their doctor is not really listening to them and just, you know, focusing on a certain path. Um, well, you know, so you basically can say, if my doctor is not giving me good vibes. Yeah. And, like, and you can nah. say, you know, I just want to know all my options. You know, I guess that's the best, best way to do it. You, and, and there's a lot out there on different ways to manage the same problem, you know, but um, patients may not always be aware of that. But if you're not comfortable with the decision, just get a second opinion. You know, that's probably the best way to do it. But um, I've had patients say that, you know, they would come and want to talk because their physician didn't listen. Um, So it really is a matter of being able to communicate with your doctor um, and communicate comfortably and and not be feeling like you're subordinate or, you know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring it back to infertility Mm -hmm. uh, when we were touching on that. Are there other factors that contribute to infertility aside from fibroids? Like, and, and 
uh, and are there any factors that are specific to black women when it comes to infertility? Actually, fibroid is not the, at the top of the list for infertility. Um, it it only caught it it is only contributing to a very small percentage of cases of infertility, probably less than ten percent. There's a large percentage of infertility is not diagnosed too. You know that we don't know the cause of. It could be an ovulatory dysfunction, which is ovulation, a problem with ovulation. Um, it could be uh, tubal disease. Um, Forty to fifty percent of the time, it can be a male factor. Um, so whenever a couple comes in and they want to be checked for infertility, that's the first thing I say. Your partner has to be tested because, you know, when you're looking at 40 to 50 percent of the, the problem could be from the male. Of course. That's yeah. an important contributor right there. Um, one of the, the um, issues at the top of the list, too, is endometriosis. And that's mm. where the lining of the uterus is, is implanted in areas outside the uterus. And that's a big uh, contributor to uh, infertility as well. That's, that's definitely much higher than fibroids. Um, fibroids can cause, um, they can be linked to, I'd say, like miscarriage or the implantation in the uterine cavity. And that's usually when they're only inside the cavity. When the fibroids are external, outside the cavity, they really don't have much of a link to infertility. Mm-hmm. It's a lot to be done now for infertility with the reproductive endocrinology specialists. And that's what I advocate, especially if you're over 35. You don't want to waste time, you know. Right. So the closer you get to advanced ages, then the more aggressive you want to be. Um, because, you know, we have a lot of options now. Yeah. You know, there's um, egg donation. There's, you know... Um, the over 35 just hit a note, Dr. Yeah. Hardy Cartwright. I just want to say that as I approach that age, I'm like now shifting in my chair. Yeah. <laughs> do you think, because I do feel like it's so much pressure, especially like women who have careers, there's a lot of pressure and it's so expensive to like freeze your eggs. Do you mm-hmm. think that it is medically speaking at like 35, like that intense of a focus to have or is there still time? I certainly think there's still time. Um, I have had plenty of patients well into their early 40s that do just fine and they have spontaneous pregnancies. Um, I think that uh, it's hard to really predict, but you're right. It is expensive. The problem with it is the ideal time to donate eggs is, you know, prior to 35. Really, it's like right around there. And that's where it becomes sticky. Because if you did need them, then you don't know. You know, it's the future and you can't see the future. Um, It's a nice option to have, I think. It's uh, probably based on, you know, what you expect your future to be, you know, whether it's not going to happen prior to 40 or, you know, it's, it's hard to make those that's a tough call. It really is. I get that question, but it's a tough call. It really is a personal decision. Yeah. Um, but uh, I can say that I have had plenty of patients that do deliver perfectly healthy babies up until like 45 even. It's just a personal decision. It's a personal decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard to make a, a medical recommendation on that because, you know. Yeah. I was just like wondering because I'm just like, I feel like at this age, everywhere you read, it's just like, oh, my God. You've got to do it now. You've got to do it now. You've got yeah. to do it now. And it's just like, do you have to? No. There's uh-uh. there's time. Yeah, there's time. Yeah, there's definitely time. I tried to donate my eggs when I was broke in New York, which is not a good reason to donate your eggs. <laughs> and I was too overweight to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it was like such a brutal. But there's also it was egg... like a double whammy. Yeah. There's also egg retrieval where you can actually have your eggs preserved, you know, up until mm-hmm. you see, I think the age is like around 40. Yeah. But ideally, you know, about, yeah, that's the you know, early 30s. Is well, that's ideal. like a conversation that I feel like women in their 30s, someone have to start it's usually, thinking about. Well, have to start thinking about, but it's usually someone else. It's like, have you thought about freezing your eggs? Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, um, yeah. Are I'm we 33. Don't ask me questions like that. Movie? <laughs> <laughs> Give is me. there any difference between uh, black women and white women when it comes to uh, infertility? Have you noticed any kind of difference? Um, that's a good question. I really hadn't noticed that much of a difference between the two there. So, and my population is, is very diverse. So, yeah, I see it in both. One of the things that I feel like 
thankfully has been in the news a lot and is like on the platform for even presidential ca- candidates is the black maternal health care crisis and mm-hmm. how it affects us regardless of your socioeconomic level or yeah. your education level. Yeah. And it is something that is really scary, scary. how many black women yeah. are dying. Yes. Trying at to give birth insane rates. at the insane rates. How, how does that inform your work and the way and the way that you work and talk to patients, but also in the way that you advocate for your community, even like being on something like this today? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a very important issue right now. I totally agree. And like you said, a lot of the studies haven't shown that there's a increased risk just based on socioeconomic status or even health factors, because black women do have, usually have a higher incidence of hypertension, diabetes, heart disease. And um, the there has been some issue with... Uh, implicit bias you know there's a in the healthcare system um in the healthcare providers you know there's um and that's where i think a lot of it has to do with communication or listening because a lot of the maternal deaths most of the ones in black women actually occur in a postpartum period and that's when they can call in and say you know they're having certain symptoms and they're just kind of not paid attention to Um, but I think one of the biggest issues is listening to the patient because they know when something's wrong and they need to be seen and the um, patients need to be, I guess, you know, their own advocate as far as being educated that, okay, I've just got home. I got a headache. I can't see my, my legs are swollen. My, you know, um, I, it's, it's, it's signs that they need to be aware of shortness of breath, chest pain, you know, things like that. And women, a lot of times they aren't taken seriously for those type of things, but especially postpartum. I mean, there's so many things that can happen postpartum and even intrapartum, you know, which is during the pregnancy itself or during the delivery. But when you focus on most of the causes, it seems to be in that postpartum period is really critical. And um, a lot of the times the black women just aren't taken seriously. And I think that's probably what's happened a lot of times. I mean, there's a lot of issues with it, too. Um, I think of even Serena Williams, who was like literally one of the most powerful people in the world. Yes. Her doctors wouldn't even listen to her. Yeah. And so what is it about? Because you've mentioned listening so many times during this interview. And it's like, what is it about being a doctor that listening that makes listening a tough part of the job is it is it something in the training is it something in the manner because it seems to be important to you and something that has isn't done widely yeah you know you you learn but I guess you know they tell you to listen and the history of the patient is the most important thing when you first have to manage a patient and I think a lot of that gets lost and it might get lost in managed care or, you know, doctors are pushed to see a certain number of patients in order to meet the quota and make revenue. And so it kind of pushes you through the system and that gets a lot of that gets lost, you know. So part of it could be due to that particular uh, change in the health care system. Is there yeah. training in medical school that helps doctors face and confront their own inherent bias when dealing with patients? There, well, I trained in a majority black <laughs> yeah. uh, institution, so we didn't really have to do that. Uh, but um, they do have it at Anne Arundel Medical Center, where I'm practicing now. They have had, um, you know, uh, racial sensitivity conferences and, you know, because we've had some issues. So mm-hmm. it's come to the forefront now. As a matter of fact, one of the things that just came up that really surprised me is I always recognize Martin Luther King birthday. And even in my practice, because, you know, I've been in practice for 31 years now, and we always took Martin Luther King birthday off. And so patients would call in, why are you off Martin Luther King birthday? You're not off of Washington Day and all that. And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not going to explain that anymore. But anyway, <laughs> finally, the hospital decides to do it just this year. So they're making a national holiday of uh, Martin Luther King, and I've promoted it ever since I left Howard University. But um, just the thing is, you know, it's just not enough 
recognition given. One to, of the uh-huh. things that you talked about um, when we were talking to you before the show and pre-interview with our producer, which I loved, is that there's also a lack of focus in, like, gynecology on certain aspects of women's reproductive health that has to deal with their pleasure and how, um, you know, oh, we pay all this money for studies on Viagra. Yes. But things about, like, you know, I think vaginal, like, dryness or women enjoying sexual activity. How, as a patient, how would you suggest someone approach that to feel comfortable talking to their doctor about that. Because I think sometimes we think, oh, this is so private and personal and I'm afraid to share this in this setting because I can just suffer on through. Like, how would you, how do do you talk to patients about that? And how do you recommend that a patient would bring up that to their doctor? Well, that's where it comes into being comfortable with your doctor and discussing things with your doctor. And I have, every time they come in, I have a questionnaire and, and, and sexual dysfunction and lack of libido, all that's on the questionnaire. So the questionnaire kind of helps me focus on what the patient is dealing with. And they usually aren't afraid to write things down, even though they may not bring it up during the during the visit. And then if it's going to take a while, I can bring them back and we can just focus on that. As long as they feel comfortable and relaxed. And and the um, the other thing is the physician has to be comfortable with discussing these things. Right. Um, and not yeah. all of them are. Um, yeah. And even though you mentioned Viagra, mm, we... <laughs> oh, I love that. Mm. Yeah, because there is a lot out there for the men and they don't really consider the women... Um, as much as they should. And I feel like the women are the ones that need it most. Um, and, you know, the the issue with Viagra is a lot of the men that get Viagra have partners that really don't want them to touch them because they're having problems <laughs> with vaginal dryness or decreased libido. And so mm. it's sort of an unequal balance there. So... Um, I I, uh, I laugh just because of yeah. that hilarious just uh, oversight. Like, of course, at the age of a man needing Viagra, his partner, who's probably his age, his also probably age. needs some sexual help. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Even, like, and, but they of. didn't think about the woman yes. needing help. And so even with dealing with the insurance companies, they will support Viagra before they will support estradiol, which is a vaginal right. um, estrogen to help women with dryness. And yeah, it's very expensive for them. It's like, you know, if it's not medically indicated for a woman, it's going to cost a fortune because I'll write a prescription for just a simple um, vaginal cream to make intercourse more comfortable for postmenopausal women, and it'll be like three hundred dollars. I'm like, what? And then, mm-hmm. it, and insurance won't cover it, you know. And this a lot of times this happens with our Medicare, and a lot of the Medicare patients are the ones that need it, so mm-hmm. they won't pay for it, you know. So I run into that all the time. So it is, and and whereas men that need Viagra is under there, you know, is covered. So. It's a lot of um, um, discrepancies with the way uh, gynecology is for um, women versus men. I, I, I just wish there were more attention given to women because we have products to help, but they don't help much, you know, um, mm-hmm. because the women's issue with sexual dysfunction is multifactorial, whereas men is not. It's more, you know. Straightforward. Yes, more straightforward. So Mm -hmm. it is a little more complicated, so it's harder to come up with something that really is like a magic pill. It seems like uh, the medical industry just fundamentally sees men's sexual pleasure as more important. Uh, I would say so. Yes, definitely. Um, But, you know, the things, even the medication that we have is you'll say, oh, you may get one um, increase in desire per month. You know, it's just not a lot. And then it has side effects. You can't drink alcohol with it. You know, things like that. It's, What's the point? It's, yeah, What's the point? Yeah. And now they have a new injection that just came out and it's one, 45 minutes before. And of course, you do an injection that's supposed to increase your arousal. But who wants to do an injection? Yeah. 45 minutes before. 45 minutes before. before. Stab yeah. yourself with a so needle? So that just came out and I'm like... Also the level of planning. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's not a lot out there for us women for that, unfortunately. Uh, How and then men change? can't even get um, birth control. I want a male birth control yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> 
how do you how do we change that? Like, do you see a path forward for like women to like advocate more for like their own sexual pleasure and like these things like Viagra for women or to deal with vaginal dryness so that we can shift that that is also centered in our healthcare. Yeah. Um, Cause you seem question. to be doing the work. Mm-hmm. It's like, how can we get other people to? Yeah. Yeah. I think it helps that we have a lot more women in OBGYN now than we used to. I mean, it's, I think we're outnumbering the men now. So that in itself should help um, with advocating for um, women, but it's no one right answer to that, I guess. It's, it's uh, very complex. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I could come up with something to help. I wish you could, too. <laughs> um, so I this is a total, just uh, a big shift side, but I think that this is such a boss move, is that you named your daughter after you. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was... <laughs> love that. How did that decision come about? (laughs) Well, I felt like since men can name their (laughs) kids uh, junior or senior that women can do it too. So that's where it came from. (laughs) And is she junior? Well, we we have... Because that would be great if you were like junior. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what we did was on her birth certificate, we put uh, Deborah K. Cartwright II. I love it. (laughs) I love it. You were such a such a boss. Like, thank you so much. But before we let you leave, we ask every guest that comes here, what's your secret? Mm. Um, my secret is I've had a great support system um, and my entire family family has been very supportive. My husband's been very supportive. I I don't feel like I would have made a bold move to go into private practice if I didn't have his expertise to support, um, you know, the accounting side of it, because I have no interest or clue about the um, economic side of what I do. And I don't, I get, uh, I get in trouble a lot because I don't pay enough attention to that side of it. So I've been very fortunate to have him helping me out, even though he works full time for the state of Maryland. (laughs) Um, So that uh, has been um, part of my uh, strength to persevere. And also I have um, I always felt like, you know, it's nice to be able to make decisions for yourself. And um, I wanted to be a good example for my daughters. I want them to be strong black women and to be able to survive in this world. You have to push on and do what you feel, you know, like you need to do. And I saw that in my mother and I saw that in my even my grandmother. I mean, they were always, you know, pushing against the system and, you know, fighting for what they want. And I, I, I saw that growing up. So I knew that nothing could really hold me back in what I really wanted to do. And I knew as a black person that I would have to work a little harder to do that. And also, I you know, felt like I couldn't really trust working for a lot of these people. You know, I felt like they were gonna, I couldn't have that security with the future of my profession if I worked for somebody else. And it's, you know, working for myself has been a lot of challenges. And, you know, sometimes I had to make big sacrifices in order for everybody else to get paid. But it was worth it in the fact that I get to make my own decisions. I get to say when I'm going on vacation, I get to, you know, make a lot of choices as to um, who I hire or, you know, um, the 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 system that's out there to work with me. And I have, I'd say a part of my success too is my sisters. Um, One of my sisters has helped me raise my two daughters and actually um, my sister is like a second mom to them. So she's definitely a part of my success. Um, And like I say, with the supportive family, supportive husband, I couldn't have done it without them. Um, And that allowed me to have the autonomy that I have today and I feel very blessed that I have that. Um, makes me kind of emotional <laughs> um, because a lot of a lot of my colleagues 
did not have the success I have with being able to be on their own. And the system is a is taking advantage of them. And I, you know, a lot of the colleagues that I work with at Anne Arundel, for instance, have been working for the hospital and they're not happy and they have to move. At at our age, you don't want to have to work for a system that doesn't care about you, you know, because a lot of these um, um, health care systems only are for the bottom line. They don't care about the patient as much as we do. And I have a, I realize that I have, I'm in a dying breed, you know, private practice. And patients will come in and say that. They say, oh, I like your practice because, you know, you're not just looking at the computer and writing, you're listening and you're looking at the patient, you know, you lose that with a lot of the way the healthcare system is now because they kind of force you through that. So I'm just saying I don't have to do that. I I don't have to become a part of that system. I've been very fortunate to be able to to maintain my own form of practice um, because of the fantastic support I've had. I have so I have a follow up question. Um, Because you've mentioned your husband a lot and how Mm -hmm. much of a support he's been. And he is in the studio cheering you on. How did you meet? Oh, (laughs) that's a good question. We um, actually met at the University of Virginia. I was in the science and he was at the comm school. And I was on the bus, the university bus, going back to my townhouse. And he was already on the bus uh, no, I was already on the bus, and he got on the bus at the comm school, which was up from the, the chemistry lab. And um, he got on the bus and said, do you mind if I sit here, lady? And so I said no, and he sat beside me, and um, he happened to get off at my same stop because his townhouse was up the hill from mine, and that's how we met. I also just want to say, because it's a podcast, so no one can see Dr. Hardy Cartwright's face, but you're totally like <laughs> blushing, telling the so story. Cute. <laughs> so cute. How long um, have you guys been married? We've been married for 33 years. And Whoa. together for how long? Um, Boy, we met when I was 21. Um, oh, my goodness. In college. So it's it's been... Mm, about 40 plus, I guess. Whoa. Now I have yeah. another follow-up question. Yeah. How how do you still keep blushing after 40 years <laughs> together? <laughs> well, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> now I want uh, now I want Mr. Cartwright in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different no, podcast. That's, that's a different podcast. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> and that's like, how did you snag? What? How special are you to snag a Dr. Hardy Cartwright in your life? Right. Exactly. On the Secret Lives of Black Men. <laughs> what we'll did he do, Dr. Cartwright? What did he do? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been. Such a delight and a joy and so informative. And we so appreciate you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I wish that there were more doctors like you. Um, Seriously. I'm like, do you want to open a practice in New Orleans? (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's totally been my pleasure. Dr. Hardy Carter, it was just so sweet and kind. Yes, but the thing that got me even more than the blushing after 40 and her being sweet and kind was that she comes from a time of such harshness. Mm-hmm. And to be such a sweet lady sitting in front of us and talking about how much she cares about her patients is just, I think it speaks to the spirit of Black women, frankly. <laughs> like yeah. It's just like, that's that's a human being, you know what I mean? Who's been through so much and yet still has so much kindness and love and softness. And warmth. And it's just been a true trailblazer, you know? Absolutely. Like, from the time that she was a child to now, it's just been a trailblazer. And I just think that that is so, that's so incredible. It's What's inspiring your, and It's I inspiring. What is your you so you you're you're chomping at the bit? What's the word of the week? I was chomping at the bit for the word of the week because sometimes I have to like mull it over, and I actually feel like this theme has come up so much, um, and I feel like it's support. I totally agree. It's something really beautiful to see that true support and to know that you're like not alone when you're fighting these big like battles and trailblazing, and you've got people that you can turn to and lean on, and yeah. 
support. Like even when she was talking about her sister helping her raise her daughters, you know what I mean? I was just like, even I started to tear up a little bit because of course she needs that that family support from everybody. You know, of course, a, a woman coming from her time being a doctor, you can't do it alone, you know, and, no, and nor should you be expected to. And it, and it is a blessing to have people around you to help you. That's amazing. Yeah. And to acknowledge those people and not be like, I feel like sometimes there's a the mentality of like, I can do everything by myself. Like I'm, you know, the 24 hour woman, I'm doing everything. And it's just like, yeah you know it's also really good to have that support, but also just the support that she provides to her patients. I feel like a lot of trouble with, like, the medical industry is not feeling seen or supported. So to have a doctor that's like, this is my focus, is really powerful. And I hope that other medical professionals that are listening also are doing the same because it truly has an impact. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons like, I mean, I've had bad experiences with doctors making me feel unseen, unheard. And I've had experiences when I was younger, especially um, when I felt I was even discouraged, you know, by my by my parents, because even they're immigrants, you know, they're they're nervous to speak up. I I was discouraged from like speaking up about something that was uncomfortable that I didn't like. And it took me until my adulthood to to be very clear <laughs> when if if I was uncomfortable, if I was in pain and me being very clear about if I don't like something, you know, not in a rude way, but just in a way of just like, you know, you either treat me kindly and gently or I leave <laughs> and I never come back. Well, it's advocating for yourself. And I think sometimes it's really hard to do that advocating, especially in a medical setting where it feels like there's this weird power dynamic of this person knows more, but no one knows your body better than you. Nobody. And I have to say, you know, this is a privilege, this feeling of being able to advocate. Like I I could tell the shift. I didn't do it until after I was in college, because after I was in college, I was just more educated about going to the doctor. I was more educated about race. I was more educated about race, dude. (laughs) When I got to college, I finally felt like, oh, I have the knowledge. I have the information. And I and I was so aware of the privilege of that information that not everybody feels that like I can back up my feelings with facts and not not everybody can do that. It's a total privilege that you don't even think of. And it makes me so angry. It makes me that like black women have to like go through this and we're not believed or cared for or supported. So it makes me super mad, but it also gives me hope that there are doctors like Dr. Hardy Cartwright and in the world that are fighting against it and have made it their mission in life and in their work to, you know, change that. Yeah, same. I appreciate that she's out here. And other black medical professionals like her out here. And before we go, I just want to take a moment to thank all the medical professionals out there, especially the ones that really see and listen to their patients and treat them with a level of just genuine care. We appreciate and you. And dignity and respect. Yes. We are so grateful and we're going to, you know, just take that with us this week Um, So until next week, I will talk to you later. Bye. We are your hosts, Sharla Lauriston and Lauren Domino. The Secret Lives of Black Women is a production of Stitcher. Thanks for listening. You can listen to other episodes from The Secret Lives of Black Women wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode from one of our favorite shows.